unbridled optimism is the unfair competitive advantage that entrepreneurs have. Uh, <laughs> we're all pragmatists, then no one would really do this. So right. of course, and sometimes it's like having a different perspective from a different industry allows you to, you know, be creative in distribution, be creative in partnership, be creative in marketing. So I think that in many regards, that can be an advantage. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I'm really happy to be joined today by Zachary D'Angelo, who is the founder of Rodeo CPG. So welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on first what Rodeo CPG is, and then a little bit about you and how you sort of wound up founding it. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the quick pitch Rodeo is, you, you know, we help growing brands navigate the increasingly competitive and difficult space of growth in its various iterations. Rodeo consists of three different teams, essentially, an operations team where we help with supply chain issues, setup, optimization, and then some ongoing ops. And then our second team is R&D. So we have a 4,000 square foot facility in Brooklyn with a team of food scientists. So we do recipe formulation and commercialization work. And then the third is sales management and strategy. So helping brands think about either DTC or go to market in retail. And then for some brands, we are their outsourced sales team in the retail environment. So through those teams, we've helped launch a bunch of brands like Omsom, Gia, Moonshot, Overeasy, Behave, Recess, to name a few. That's a really fun part of what we do. And then to further confuse the audience, we also are building software to address some of the more challenging aspects of retail growth. So rodeocpg.io is a free environment with all sorts of tools that people can use for pricing and forecasting and things like that. And then we have a product called Pitchable, which helps you manage and execute outreach to independent retailers throughout the country. So that's a lot of words, but we look to you know, hopefully improve the chances of the most innovative and better for you brands to succeed in this historically very opaque marketplace. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's really cool. And, you know, it, there are a lot of offerings, but it feels almost like a 360 solution for founders versus what they're doing now. Well, many of them are doing now, which is going to someone to help them with one of those things and someone else to help with another one of those things. And it's challenging to find the right partners. And it sounds like you're doing some of that work for them. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I do believe that they're in the same way that Shopify made it very easy to create a marketplace and directly connect with a customer. I think that there is an opportunity to consolidate sort of the, for lack of a better word, operating system within growing a CPG business where all that continuity and connectivity exists so that you don't have to patchwork together, you know, a network of advisors and companies and all sorts of things. That ultimately is sort of the core vision of Rodeo at large. Yeah, that's awesome. Talk about how you decided this was going to be your path. What was your background? 
Yeah, absolutely. If we went all the way back, I spent some time in finance and uh, was pricing credit default swaps in 2006. So you can sort of imagine the chaos and trajectory there. And it just wasn't that fun for me. And I loved food always. I'd spend my last dollar on a good meal. My mom owned a catering company as a kid. So I was in the kitchen and cooking a lot. So I went to graduate school with the hopes of of making food my business. I didn't know what that meant, but that journey, I ended up starting with a partner, a gluten-free cereal company out of Mm -hmm. graduate mama, learned a lot, traveled in various co-manned facilities, learned about formulation and ingredient procurement and things like that. And along the way, met a friend and get started a baby food company. And I joined him in, in that effort. That was called Little Duck Organics. And we we had some success with that and, and grew to an, a national and international presence and ended up selling the business in 2014. Certainly not a huge sale or anything, but a lot of learning, some liquidity, and certainly the basis for passion in the industry moving forward. Moved to Colorado, ran sales for a natural pet food company called I Am Loving You, which eventually rolled up into the El Catterton portfolio. And through those experiences, I had always been kind of disappointed in the services infrastructure in CPG. There was just a lot of like independent purveyors, a lot of reinventing the wheel, a lot of overcomplication. And so, you know, started Rodeo with the hopes of of making everything more connected and more clear and less complicated. And that was kind of the start. And that was around 2016, 2017. So it just had been at it ever since and been very, very fortunate to work with an amazing team and, and many, many incredible brands, some of which I've mentioned and many others. So that, that was kind of my path. Interesting that you started thinking you were going to do your own companies and then you wound up building a company to help other founders. What are you seeing right now as the biggest challenges? Because I think there have been so many sort of highs and lows and there was so much money before COVID, like everybody was getting funded and then overvalued and then COVID happened and everything kind of paused for a minute. And now it feels like it's not paused anymore, but there's a lot more caution among the investment community. Are you seeing that too? 100%. I mean, and I think that there's a natural cycle to all of it. We saw this in 2008. Yeah. We're lucky in some regard because, you know, healthy food is somewhat insulated to the broader reality and certainly tons of new brands were started in that 2008, 2009 time period. I suspect that we'll see something similar. Now that the difference between then and now is that the infrastructure is much more robust now in terms of co-packing and services and sales and all of that. So it's easier to start a CPG brand than it ever has been. Yep. More competition, and in our industry, you know there is a ninety percent plus attrition rate. So a lot of brands fail. And our job is to try to identify the most promising ones and then prevent them from doing so. So to your point, yes, it's difficult right now. Supply chain is more difficult than I've experienced in the past fourteen years. There are certainly challenges of the day, but some of it is just by nature of the normal cycles that happen in the economy. You know, I'd say. What do you think is some of the biggest challenges for founders that you're seeing? Like you said, there's 90% attrition rate. You're trying to help the ones that are the most promising succeed. What stops those people from succeeding usually, generally speaking? Oh, so many things. I mean, capital being one, partnership dynamics being another, product economics not being scalable, a huge one. Many people start with a low margin and then hope through volume that that margin gets 
kind of a fallacy. Retail selling is really hard and the cash cycles are really long. So you need a ton of working capital and understanding that financial reality is a huge hurdle for many. And, and I'd say that in our industry, that just naturally speaking, there's a lot of like passionate enthusiasts that start food and beverage brands that don't necessarily like have a strong foothold on cash flow management. That's a reality. And certainly a lot of folks have tried to demystify that process, rodeo included. But at the end of the day, this is a people business and your product once it hits shelf, people need to love it and repurchase it over and over again. And that's a really hard formula to, to nail right off the bat. So I think there are a lot of reasons for failure, but those are some of the ones that I see most frequently. There are so many brands that I've talked to and founders that I've talked to who one of the things that they think has been a challenge and also in some cases has made them successful is the fact that they really don't know what they're doing sometimes. Like they're from a completely different industry and they have an idea or they're a serial entrepreneur and they have passion for something, but they don't, it's not the business side of it. Do you see a lot of that? Unbridled optimism is the unfair competitive advantage that entrepreneurs have. Uh, (laughs) We're all pragmatists then no one would really do this. So Of course. And sometimes like having a different perspective from a different industry allows you to, you know, be creative in distribution, be creative in partnership, be creative in marketing. So I think that in many regards, that can be an advantage. Now, you know, irrational optimism is different than, you know, realistic optimism. And so I think that that is someone who can be unyieldingly optimistic, but then be able to realize when something's not working and then adjust, that's when you get a really great entrepreneur. You need the optimism, but you also need the the realism and flexibility to know that almost nobody gets it right from day one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Who are the people you sort of admire? Like, are there some people that when you talk about unyielding optimism, or I think realistic optimism is an interesting one because it's sort of a little bit of an oxymoron, right? You're <laughs> you're an optimist and you see things that other people don't see and you believe in things that you can't prove out. But are there people that you just are like, that's the kind of person I want to work with, or that's the kind of brand I love? Yeah. So, I mean, so many. So Matt Clifford, who's the CEO of Keto Crisp is one of the best operators I've ever known. Just unbelievable executor great at motivating people, creating a really fun environment in which to work. So soft and hard skills, that's yeah. a combo. So Vanessa and Kim Pham of Omsom, I've seen very few duos that are more effective at marketing and targeting the right consumer for their brand. And therefore their message resonates so much more powerfully than if they mm-hmm. water Man, I mean, I, I could go on forever. You know, David Greenfield at Dream Pops, so creative, so unwilling to adhere to the normal constraints of what people think is possible. I mean, he started, I think, with like this shape of an ice cream pop that everyone was like, it'll never work. He just fought through it. And now, you know, he has a really wonderful business. Then there's like Serio at Liquid Death. Like, I'm a CPG, been in it for a while. If it, someone had come to me with that concept, I would have been like, absolutely not. But hour again of telling a story and connecting, like no one's done it better. Like it's, it's, I mean, there's so many examples I could pull out of. 
Awesome. So I'm curious about what made you decide to do this instead of continue on founding brands, building brands? I mean, you're doing building brands, right? You're obviously helping build brands, but versus your own brand. You know, I, I don't even know if it was that intentional. I had invested in a nut butter company and I was running that and it just like didn't work. And so then I started Rodeo as an outsourced operations group. So it was just get like a couple clients and then it started to sort of stick. And I liked practically helping, not just offering advice, but getting in there and helping. And, and then like sort of the thesis kind of formulated by nature of the work that I was doing. And then kind of inertia took over and then more and more opportunities sort of emerged where, you know, I thought that we as an entity could do a ton of good and interact with a lot of brands. And, you know, from a very practical standpoint, it's, I am sort of by nature a pragmatist, but like working with a portfolio of brands is slightly less risky than putting yes. one brand, though I admire and certainly can empathize with those that like, you know, see an opportunity and go for it. It sort of just evolved by what I liked to do on a day-to-day basis, what I thought I was good at. And then as we gained momentum, the opportunities emerged from there. So I'm not sure it was specifically intentional. Huh, interesting. What kind of brands do you gravitate toward or what kind of brands gravitate toward you guys versus some other form of help? I think that I always say, yeah, innovative, which is kind of a generic term, but I think brands that have a clear message, brands that have identified a clear white space, brands that are trying to do something really, really different. Those are ones that we've interacted with. Like think about recess as, as really the first approachable brand in the CBD category, like Ben who started that company. I mean, he was, he was so energetic about that. The, the notion that he could reinvent like a, elixir for the modern day stressful world. Like that was mm-hmm. to be a part of that. Obviously, Omsum, Overeasy, you know, Gia doing non-alc in a totally different way. Moonshot, Julia Collins, the CEO there wanting to really create a earth-friendly CPG product, which in many cases is kind of an oxymoron because CPG is responsible for, you know, most of the plastic waste in the world. So we have a lot, it's just people that are that are really, really enthusiastic and have a lot of energy to tackle these big problems. That's what I think resonates with many of us at Rodeo. Because many of us have been in that in that position. Like many of us have started our own brands and have fought through it. And and I think that, you know, the team, like the vibe that we try to create, like don't take yourself too seriously. At the end of the day, like, you know, when I was running Little Duck, like I was selling fruit. I was a fruit sales guy. Like that's yeah. None of it's rocket science. It's just, it, but it takes a lot of, there's, it's hard. It's, it's yeah. I think that, you know, those that just respond to like a slightly less serious, fun, innovative approach are the ones that naturally are inclined to work with Rodeo. How do brands get involved with you? Like, what do you guys do? Do they, is it a fee-based thing or is it equity? It depends what we're doing for a brand. So on the services side, Oftentimes, it's just a month-to-month sort of retainer. For some brands, particularly if we're helping launch the brands, there can be a small equity component if it feels good on both sides. We've really tried to create content. Like we created a digital course called Jumpstart for $150 to make it really accessible at an early 
part of, of an entrepreneur's journey. We're really trying to meet, you know, entrepreneurs where they are in their yeah. various like services and tools that we use to do that. What's the perfect size brand for you? Is it really super startup or is it somewhere in the middle or is it anything, could it be anything? Yeah, I, I would say that the commercialization recipe formulation work is the is the most diverse uh, portfolio of brands. We work with some of the largest multinationals to drive innovation and then early stage pre-rev founders. Ongoing operations and sales support tend to be brands in growth phase. Yeah. So a million to 20 million, like yeah. that range. But you know, we'll continue to evolve and figure out how we best serve the brand community and you know, pitchable, the, the software product that helps you manage independence, that's appropriate for brands of all shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. So that's our job is to continue to innovate and create stuff that is profoundly useful for brands in various stages of their, of their growth. What's your favorite part of working with brands? Like what's your favorite part of what you do? It's a great question. I think that it's infusing the notion of you know, an operating model, a way in which to do business, a more, I don't know how to say this, but creating an architecture that is suitable for scale and help and disassociate emotionally from the business that they're creating in order to make better decisions and, you know, providing them a better chance to succeed, like breaking that down because starting a business is always an emotional process. Oh, but it is really important to understand, and we write about this sometimes, like it is not your baby. Like I feel strongly about that. Like you don't sell or try to, it's not profit. Even if you're not profit oriented, it's still not your baby. It's a organization that an entrepreneur or founder is a steward of. And, you know, being able to disassociate like your own identity from it allows you to make smarter decisions, allows you to reduce your ego so that you can better respond to a consumer's perception of your brand rather than your own. And that's a really fun sort of psychological, but very important piece of what we do. Yeah, I bet. Because I think that a lot of founders are super emotionally connected to what they're building. A hundred percent. And I was too, but I, I think that it provides an advantage. And I'm not saying don't be passionate about what yeah. you're doing. And just, you know, be able to separate ego and ownership over something that like in many regards, there are variables beyond your control and yeah. your response to those uncontrollable variables are what's going to dictate whether you can be successful or not. So I don't know, that was kind of out there, but that is a, a like understanding that nuance is really interesting to me. I think so too. How do you help founders get there? All sorts of things. I mean, empathy is huge. So understanding where they're coming from, you know, high emotional intelligence is something we look for for everyone on our team so that we can understand, but also help instruct. You can know. you talk about that for a second? Because it's literally one of my favorite topics. I don't think people talk about emotional intelligence enough ever, like from, you know, school to grownups. I don't think we even talk about it very much, but I think it's so important. Can you talk about what you mean by it? Yeah. And again, I think empathy is at the core of it, but I think under, like if someone's really, really mad, you know, not reacting and understanding what is the impetus for the anger and then how to diffuse it. And, you know, cause in the services business, like we're not perfect. We'll make mistakes. And, you know, at the end of the day, 
no matter what we do, no matter how good we get with technology, this is a people business. If you don't have high emotional intelligence, it will result in failure. It just will. So I think from everyone on our team, from early you know, associates earlier in their career to people that have worked in CPG for 30 years, you have to understand where your customer is coming from, where the co-packer is coming from, where the distributor is coming from, all of it in order to successfully navigate, you know, a pretty complex business environment. And yeah, I think it's at the core of, and entrepreneurs helping them build emotional intelligence, not to sound sort of pedantic in any way or condescending, but it is like, you know, the ability to nurture long-term relationships and not be too reactive and not be too reactive to the pressures that you're getting from your investor group and being able to sort of like maintain long-term relationships, I think is really important. And so anyway, it's as we hire that emotional IQ piece is really, really critical to, you know, a a successful rodeo employee. To me, it feels really important too for the founders because there are so many highs and lows. And if you go high every time and low every time, it's hard to imagine how you could sustain those levels of emotion. You have to clip the highs and the lows. You can't emotionally react to everything. Yeah. Uh, you, the only thing of certainty is that you're going to have great days and you're going to have horrible days. And for me, like there are many times like weeks where I'm like, I don't understand how I can navigate this one. Like this feels like everything's going down the drain. And then the next week, a few good things happen. And so I do think that that's hugely important is uh-huh. to... There's the wave of being grateful and putting things in perspective and, you know, all that. It's important. It's harder for me, like by nature feels a little woo, but it is important. And, you know, we are, most of us are not like, it's not live or die. We're not like, there are situations in this world, especially now that are live and die that are so Putting perspective into the day-to-day is super important, of course. I think so too. I mean, it is. I also think it's great, but that's one of the reasons I love doing interviews like this is because I think the more people hear that there are people just like them that have these extreme highs and lows and it's normal, the better you have to feel about it. Like knowing that other people also are like, I can't do this for one more minute. Oh my God, this is so awesome within you know four hours of each other is pretty amazing and it happens all the time. Yeah, we all need therapists. I'm I'm very <laughs> you know, mine it was something that resonated is you can't necessarily control how you feel about stuff, but you can control how you react to that feeling. Yeah. And you know, that's served me really well because otherwise I, I just go nuts. Yep. Yep. What other things are like advice for people who are wanting to either scale or kind of looking around and saying, what do I do next? I don't know where to go from here. Again, I hate, like, I always caveat it by saying like, look, there are a million ways to succeed and there are a million ways to fail. My advice is by my own sort of journey and experience sets. And I would say things like, you know, margin is super important. Don't fall in love with your concept from day one. Understand that you will constantly have to iterate. I think that R&D is not a one or two time a year thing. I think it's a constant thing. You know, consumer preferences change all the time. Yeah. And you front of that. And you know, listening to your consumer is extremely important. Things we espouse all the time, 
don't proliferate your number of doors before you understand where your velocity works really, really well. Yeah, I think that's so one of the most important things I've heard over and over again, or seen kill brands over and over again is over distribution and not understanding what it means or how to support it. Yeah, and it's hard because investors mm-hmm. growth by you have to grow by any means necessary. So yep. that to, to perhaps make decisions that aren't the best thing long term for your business. And I understand that, but you need to trust the data and dive into the data. An example is like, there was a time at Little Duck, we were growing, we were doing great. We were in like 10,000 doors. And then, but slowly we, from a ingredient supply standpoint, we got at some new suppliers and the product wasn't great. Like it was, it was good. And I was like, it's fine. Like, what am I going to do? Like send it back. Like we'll be out of stock for three months. And then, but I quickly saw in the data, like my velocities were going down 20, 25, 30%. And I was like, wait, this is an anomaly. I'll just, nah, like I'll just, and by the time, like it was very clear that like the product quality, the consumer reacts and notices. And by the time, like I got a grip on that, we had lost a lot of money. And I just always pay attention to that stuff because the consumer is telling you what, you know, they're demanding and your ability to be responsive to that is you know really critical to your success. Cash cycles. Absolutely critical. Know that, like, you know, cash cycles can be 120 days in this industry, meaning you need four minutes of working capital in order to even like keep up with the status quo, let alone high growth. Mm -hmm. So it is a capital intensive business almost always. DTC is a great strategy to test out. But at the end of the day, if you're raising a lot of money and you need to scale, you will inevitably have to be in retail with very Obviously, you know, there are some exceptions, daily harvest or or whatever, but 98% of the time, retail will be a critical component to scale. So understand that based on your unit economics and your strategy. We could talk for two weeks about all the things that I would recommend. Yeah. Brands and any brand that wants to chat about it, I'm always available. Well, how does someone reach out to you? How do you like to be contacted? LinkedIn or your website? Not precious about that. LinkedIn's great. Zachary at rodeocpg.com is my email. You know, we try to help in whatever way that we can if an entrepreneur has a question or whatever. We're building a community. We're launching a new site uh, in the next couple of days where people can just go on and ask questions and someone from the rodeo team will answer within 24 hours. So we're just trying to keep infusing things that allow, you know, some of this know-how and tools and all that stuff to be more accessible. That's awesome. That's really exciting stuff. Where do you want Rodeo to be? Like, how do you want to be known? What will make you feel like you've been successful? And maybe you already feel like you're there, which is awesome too. I'm just curious. No, no, I've never felt that way. (laughs) (laughs) Therapy question. Uh, I just want to help a ton of brands. I do want to build a a successful, thriving company. I want everyone who works at Rodeo to feel fulfilled, I I guess, in every way. Like that to me is really fun and, you know, the definition of success. I want to launch a bunch of amazing brands. I want to improve some of the constructs of our industry that have existed for a long time, just because that's was, but there is absolutely room for improvement. And if rodeo can change a few of those things, I'll feel again, fulfilled. Awesome. Do you want to talk about what those things are? 
as an example, so just the historical notion of the broker network and what yes, I knew you were going to say that. Yes, is it's the model. There's so many wonderful people that are in in that business, but I take issue with the model. The model no longer serving the community. You know, just with Pitchable as an example of taking this super fragmented independent retailer network, the broker model, knowing. I know that model. I've worked with it. I've worked within it. I've, I know it. And there's no way a brokerage model could successfully serve the 30,000 independent grocery stores throughout the country. It's, it's impossible. You have to do it through automation and technology. Yeah. So that's what we're tackling first. And so we're going to focus there and build a better tool for people to achieve sales in that subsection of retail much more efficiently in a much more cost-effective manner. And we'll keep going. But that's one example where there's, you know, I've written about UNFI and Kehi and the typical distributors and how tough that is for brands. It's not to say that it's not tough for UNFI either. It's not serving the innovative brand anymore. So there are a lot of opportunities for improvement. And there are a lot of wonderful organizations, you know, attempting to make those shifts. And so, and Rodeo is putting their, our flag in that independent retailer world right now. Amazing. That's awesome. Well, I think there's so much good stuff in here. If you want to send me links to some of the stuff you've written about, I'll include that when I send the blog post out. So I think that would be really great for people to get to see some of the stuff that you posted about and written about and find good ways to get connected to you. And everything's, I will send you those links and everything is available on a knowledge share on our website. And again, if there's anything we can do to help, you know, no one should hesitate to reach out or ask. Awesome. Thank you so much. Any parting thoughts you want to share before we wrap this up? No, I just appreciate the time. And it's a hard time, I think, for a lot of brands to your It is. Capital is going to become increasingly hard. Acquisitions are likely to slow down a little bit there will be a, an increased focus on the bottom line. And so just creating a profitable business that makes money at an earlier stage will really be critical. And that's hard. Like it's really hard. So. Well, it's no. hard. And it's also not how it was five minutes ago. Like five minutes ago, you didn't have to be profitable. You just had to show that you had an idea on how that might happen someday. <laughs> but now I think that's changing quickly. And the same thing about what you said about velocity, like you need it. And I think people know what it means to be spread too thin. And even investors worry about that right off the bat. So I think it's a really interesting time. Totally. And without really knowing how distributors work and retailers work, a lot of people can be surprised way after the decision has been made about how slim their margin actually is. And yeah, that's a really, really big component of this whole profitability question is understanding and being confident enough to say no when retailers are asking too much and understand your and understanding what is happening out there with things like Gold Belly and Hungry Root and Thrive and all of these that may offer better avenues to profitable success earlier on. And it's asking a lot of entrepreneurs because they have to do more and they have to know more that's just a result of increased competition and increased avenues and channels to sell their product in. So it's hard, but at the end of the day, it is, it's not rocket science and it is a people business. And there are a lot of, the one wonderful thing about our industry is there's a lot of people that are willing to help. Yep. It feels like it. 
I think the difference between now and two or three or five years ago is there are so many more organizations that are just set up to help founders and companies versus figuring it all out on your own and finding all your own resources. I think now there are just a lot more places to look for that, which is great. I couldn't yeah. agree more. Yeah, because you don't have to have all the knowledge anymore. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to get this live. And then, as I mentioned, I'll write a blog post about it and I'll send that out too and I'll share all that with you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.